0: Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. With less than 45,000 troops to their name and crippled by debt, the British Empire was growing desperate. Knowing that a conscript draft would be unpopular and over budget, Parliament turned to the disunited states of the Holy Roman Empire to fill their ranks. Although often called mercenaries, the German soldiers recruited to fight in North America were anything but that, and most were forced to serve against their will. On this episode, we discuss the Hessians. Remember, my new book, Hessians, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America, will be released this spring. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon.com. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Guten Tag, ladies and gentlemen, and willkommen to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the mention Platzen, und Ideen that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. (laughs) Come on, that's not bad. Oh boy. As always, remember... Gashikta is best when it's shared. (laughs) No, that's that's. (laughs) And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. On my author's website, keep up with news, events, appearances uh, at bradykreitzer.com, and you're home for everything Wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, as you can imagine, we're doing something slightly differently and probably mostly embarrassing, and we're going to be talking about a very unique part of the American Revolution that does get us away from our typical year-by-year approach and into a conversation I think that's much needed uh, and very interesting, not to mention that uh, it may help me sell uh, a few books in the future. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about the European influences on the American Revolution, most notably the influences that come from the place that we today call Germany. When you talk about the American Revolution, you're dealing with something that I think is very uh, typically closed off from the rest of the world. We always say uh, history doesn't occur in a vacuum, uh, and yet when we deal with the American Revolution, seemingly every time, we enclose it exactly in that, a vacuum. We talk about the American colonies first and foremost, the center of our attention. And then, of course, we bring the British in in a very specific role, the role of the aggressor, the terrorizer, the great antagonist, if you would. And then we kind of stop it there. Oh, yes, along the way, the French will play a part. We don't want to talk too much about that. It breaks from our very cozy and comfortable narrative. And then the Americans bring down the mighty British Empire. They cease to exist, and America's number one. Um, if only it were that easy. It's not, of course, as you could imagine. There's much more to it than that. And what I'd like to talk about today is the larger role that the outside world plays in the Revolution. Now, this will break again away from our yearly stanza. Next week, we will dive headlong into 1780. But I think this is worth some investigation, because I say it a lot. You've heard me say it a lot throughout the season. If this is your first time listening, uh you know, spoiler, I'm going to say this a lot. Uh, It's that the American Revolution is way more complicated than we think. Uh, And there's much more to it than we tend to think as well. What this episode will be uh, is the proof positive of that. Of course, when you're talking about Germany in the American Revolution, you're mostly talking about one very specific, and I would describe one very hated group, Uh, the group we'll call the Hessians. Now, before this conversation begins, I think in the interest of full disclosure, I do have a book coming out in May of 2015 that is called Hessians, specifically because now all history books have to fit into a certain uh, titling stanza or something, I guess you can say. Uh, it's Hessians colon, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America. Again, May of 2015. Now, interest of full disclosure, that's coming out. And also, for the sake of full disclosure, uh, I am doing it, of course, to make money, uh, as well as pursue and, and, and further the historical debate. Uh, but uh, I'd like to talk today about the Hessian soldiers, because one, you know, the material's all on hand. I've been swimming in it for about a year. Uh, and I think that it is really important for rounding out any real serious discussion of the American Revolution. And I like to think, uh, of course, aside from the opening of today's episode, uh, that. Uh, we're doing that here. So let's talk about who the Hessians are. What do they do? But I think more importantly, uh, how do they view the revolution? Because uh, for the most part, the Hessian soldiers who come here tend to be educated. Uh, They tend to be well-versed in the art of war. They tend to have fought in a lot of different places for a lot of different reasons, none of which really had a lot to do with them. Uh, And they all have very strong opinions about the American Revolution. Now, before we get into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about why I wrote the book that I did uh, for the past year. Uh, In my mind, uh, the revolution is uh, very far from being an open and shut case. I think a lot of people have moved on, uh, and they're leaving a lot of important stones yet to be turned behind them. But for me, I work in this fashion. Uh, I know that basically every week, uh, two new books on the American Revolution in some formula uh, will be released in the world. Whether it be a biography of George Washington, which we don't seem to have enough of, uh, that's a joke. Uh, whether it be uh, one particular battle broken down, or whether it be a general overview of the entire conflict, which we're doing here. We have all of those things a lot. For me, the challenge has always been, as someone who studies this time period and specializes in empire which the forces of which are enormous in this time period. It's finding something new. It's finding something different. It's telling you all a new story uh, and making you change the way you think about something you knew very well. Again, I'm not on this podcast to tell you what to think. I'd like to believe we're discussing how to think. Uh, but I really want to inform you on this podcast um, this time period for that reason. But for me, I looked at the American Revolution, I looked at it in its totality, and I saw dozens and dozens and dozens of books on American commanders, hundreds of books on American command and commanders. You see very few books on British commanders, uh, I would say roughly 90% less than American commanders. And then you see absolutely no books published in the last, say, uh, five years, maybe, uh, dealing with the Hessian soldiers who fought in the American Revolution. Now, that's not really fair. I mean, there have been, uh, I think, two or three since the year 2000, and they're and they're very good. Uh, but they're also very narrow and in scope, uh, and that does play an important role. I mean, it's very specific information about one specific group of soldiers. But it's nothing that I think a general audience or a historian who's not well-versed specifically in the Hessian soldiers can really deal with. I wanted to write a book that, uh, that anyone could pick up, um, that is, any adult could pick up, uh, and digest and not feel overwhelmed. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted you to have a real 21st century examination and exegesis of what the Hessian soldiers were in the American Revolution and in the larger 18th century. So that's my book. It follows three different German peoples who came as a result of those decisions from all very different walks of life, all who kept immaculately impressive journals, and all who had very differing opinions on the revolution itself. So that's really how I want to preface this entire discussion, because they play an undeniable role in the American Revolution, and they will take on, believe it or not, the brunt of the combat whether you're talking about the theaters of New York, New Jersey, the theaters of Pennsylvania, uh, the theaters of the Hudson River or the Champlain River Valley, or even all the way to the theaters of uh, the Gulf Coast. I mean, these people will play an important role. Now, before we get into who they are, what they do, why they're important, I think we have to deal with the most very basic idea. And that is, uh, who are they, where are they from, and why are they even an option to send to the new world Uh, to fight on behalf of the British Empire. Whenever we look at Europe in the 18th century, one of the things you really have to do is challenge yourself not to look at history through your own lens. I promise you this might be the last German I throw at you in the podcast, but then again, you never know. Uh, The Germans, in terms of history, uh, believe in something they describe as Sitz in Leben, or setting in life. And what that means is when you read a document from the 18th century or the 12th century or 2500 BCE, wherever, when you're reading a historical, historical document, do not read it uh, from your own vantage point. Do not try and internalize it and digest it and make sense of it from the 21st century. Because it wasn't written in the 21st century. It wasn't written for you to analyze. It was usually written for a very, uh, we would say, productive and utilitarian reason. Uh, Sending a message, recording some information. I mean, uh, historical sources are vast and mighty, but very few of them are written for the sake of uh, future posterity. So when you study them, uh, do as the Germans do. Zitzenleben, setting in life. Think of it when it was written understand it from that vantage point, and you'll see that uh, you get much more from it. This applies to all historical sources, even religious ones, and we'll leave it at that. But that's what we have, Zitz and That's how historians analyze things. And when you look at who these men are, and women in some cases, uh, that were called upon by the British Empire to fight, what you find is, um, when you understand 18th century Europe, Their role becomes much more clear. Don't look at Europe from today's vantage point. Here's the biggest change Uh, there is a Great Britain, a United Kingdom of Great Britain. They are the most powerful empire in Europe. There is an empire of France, or at least what's left of it, after the Seven Years' War. And then in the rest of the European continent, you have many different small entities really rallying and trying. Uh, to find a place for themselves. The Empire of Spain still exists, but it's terribly weak. Uh, It's an old empire. It's an empire built of silver and gold and all the things we talked about uh, in Season 1 of Wartime, and it's on the decline. They are not major players on the European stage. That is, they do not dictate policy. They decide what side they want to take, British or French, and they go from there. But what about the rest of Europe? Because that's where this story is going to take place. Well, right dead in the center of the continent in the 18th century is a place today we would call Germany, Deutschland. But it doesn't exist in 1776. It's not there. And it's never existed before. What you have is a huge piece of territory, bigger than what is today modern Germany, filled with millions of people. They speak the same language, German. They eat the same foods, German. They listen to the same music and composers and love the same art, German. But they aren't one thing. We can't reify them, we'll say, yet. They're actually several different individual political powers. Collectively, because they all have those very common cultural strands, And historically, we call this area the Holy Roman Empire. But even that title is sort of a title from days gone by. In total, there are over 350 different political entities that make up the Holy Roman Empire. We can use the word states to describe them, but that really isn't accurate, because they all have their different uh, uh, sovereigns and monarchies and power structures. Uh, some of them lean toward democracy. Some of them lean toward uh, a more traditional uh, monarchy. Some of them are called duchies or landgravits. Uh, all of them okay, are very different. They all have their own rulers, their own kings, their own sense of themselves. But they have this common cultural trend that one day, about 100 years after the American Revolution, uh, that will lead to them all putting their differences aside and unifying into what they call Germany, and instantly becoming the most powerful state in Europe. But in 1776, the Holy Roman Empire, this German world, is divided into, again, over 350 different states. Some of them are Protestant. Some of them are Catholic. If you understand how important those differences are in the 18th century, you see just how uh, divisive this German world can be. But all of them think they are still relevant in the European world. And the fact of the matter is, it could not be further from the truth. In the Seven Years' War, 1763, the end of that war, we're going to go back. If you haven't noticed by now, the entire revolutionary story seems to begin in 1763, the end of the Seven Years' War. It's that important. But in the Seven Years' War, at the end of it, Uh, you saw a real reshuffling of the power deck in Europe. Not only did Britain become the number one superpower in the world, but France was taken out of that position, if they ever had it, uh, and really stripped of a lot of their colonial powers. That had a trickle-down effect all throughout the continent. Uh, And we're learning more and more about this every day as we study it. Again, it's a a, uh, criminally understudied war. But one of the things that occurred at the beginning of the Seven Years' War uh, was that Britain made a decision uh, that it had to fight this war in a different kind of way. So what do we mean by that? Well, Britain knew if it was going to be successful, it would need all hands on deck around the world. They sent their very best fighters all over the world to fight the French. But if they did that, that meant their European homeland was very weak. And believe it or not, I'm not talking about the British Isles. What I'm talking about is the ancestral home uh, of the of the British monarchy at the time, which was not in England at all, but it was in what we'd call today Germany, then the Holy Roman Empire. I'm talking about the state of Hanover. Now this gets into old European bloodlines, but basically the monarchy that ruled England in the 18th century during the American Revolution was what we call the Hanoverian dynasty. George III was a part of that, uh, and they owed their familial origins to Hanover, a city-state, so to speak, uh, in Germany. In the time of the Revolution, Britain had a real sort of unique attachment to Hanover in Germany uh, because it was their shared heritage. It was their, uh, at least in the eyes of the monarchy, their ancestral homeland. And they went to great lengths to protect that one fairly strategically meaningless place. In order to protect Hanover, because, again, the British have their forces all over the world in 1763, they got a hold of one of the premier German powers in the Holy Roman Empire uh, called Prussia, led by a man named Frederick the Great or Frederick II. Frederick II's job was to fight the French in Europe on behalf of the British and, most of all, protect Hanover. That's the idea. So because of that, the British had a lot of success in the Seven Years' War, and the French, because they were divided between defending Europe with the bigger army they have, superior to the British, and defending their colonial possessions, uh, they put their emphasis on Europe more than anything else. And because of that, they lost. What very quickly occurred, and this is what's important for us in 1763 and beyond, was that the Seven Years' War really made, out of those 350 states that make up the Holy Roman Empire, two of them reign supreme, politically and militarily. To the north, there were the Prussians, who were traditionally British allies. To the south, there was another German polity called the Austrians, traditional French allies, sometimes. Uh, And basically what happened is Prussia and Austria in the Holy Roman Empire become like the two polarizing forces in, in in the traditional German world. Remember, there's over 350 different tiny states. But really, it came down to, are you on team Prussia or team Austria? And those individual tiny German principalities, duchies, and monarchies all sort of took sides. I'm not saying the Holy Roman Empire ceased to exist, because it didn't. But this is much like the Cold War uh, in American history. Uh, The world was really divided. Are you on America's side or the Soviet Union's side? And you kind of lined up accordingly. That's what happens in the Holy Roman Empire. Now, what does this all mean? Who cares? Well, here's the really important thing. What if you're one of those uh, small individual principalities who didn't really have an allegiance to one side or the other? Well, mostly that meant you were irrelevant. Unless you could find a way to make yourself relevant. To make yourself worthwhile and make yourself, if not a power player on the European stage. We don't want to use that term but at least, again, uh, visible on the European stage. This is all will lead us to our discussions of the Hessians in the American Revolution. Now, let's go back to 1763 in Britain, leave the German world where it is. If you are the British Empire, remember, you have vanquished your great French enemy in 1763, but now you are crippled with debt uh, and an empire that, as much as you love it, is far too big for you to effectively control. Your military forces are exhausted. You can't really put more money into the military because you're already in terrible debt as a result of the war. And you have a whole host of problems to deal with. Expanded empire is a burden. Then we get to 1775, and we see the beginnings of the American Rebellion. In England, as you can imagine, this is very troublesome because they're still trying to pay off those debts from that war a lot of the taxes, which caused a lot of the problems in the New World. And now they're faced with the realities of uh, bringing their military back and sending them back into action against their own citizens in America. When you look at what Britain is facing after the Seven Years' War, which they never really recover from by the time of the Revolution, they are simply in no position financially to suppress the American Revolution. They aren't. So they have to get creative about how they're going to do it. Well, first things first, what do the British have on hand? On hand, they have, get this, about 45,000 soldiers around the world. That's it. 45,000. To give you some idea, that's basically like if you fill up uh, Yankee Stadium, uh, plus a few more, throw some bleachers in there, that's the entire British army. That is a, a skeleton crew. By 18th century standards, remember, before the Ameri- before the British won the Seven Years' War, they barely had enough men, as it were. But now their empire is almost triple the size. They really have a skeleton crew on hand. What will they do? Well, they're faced with a few options. They can a institute a conscript draft, actually draft British citizens into military service. But that would be terribly expensive, and again, money's the one thing they don't have. You have to train them, you have to arm them, you have to transport them, and you have to supply them. And those are all major expenses for the British. Factor in the idea that you're going to use these conscript forces, these uh, soldiers who don't even want to be uh, in combat, against their own citizens in America. And Parliament begins to realize this is a very bad idea. You could have a revolt on your own hands in your own military. But they still have the big problem. The Americans are starting to rebel. Military force is needed. What do you do? I mean, you can't just let them go. You have to uh, attempt to save your empire. So it all comes down to dollars and cents. And they look at what is the most cost-effective way to put people in the field to fight that will suppress the American Revolution as quickly as possible. Well, you can actually do something. Uh, in Europe in the 18th century, which today seems appalling, but at the time was uh, probably equally appalling, but effective in making money. Uh, And that was rent out entire armies for your disposal. Now, the Germans had a term for this. They called it Soldatenhandel, uh, which was basically you take an army of a German state or principality or duchy or whatever, there's 350, take your pick, And you rent out the entire army in your service. You take the money, uh, say a sum of, in this case, 22,000 British pounds, and you give it to the king of that respective state or duchy or landgrave or whatever. He then gives you the army. You feed them, you supply them, but they're already trained and they're already ready to go. That's the idea. So, the British look long and hard at the continent of Europe and they ask themselves, where can we find a ready made army that we can throw into North America uh, that will ease the financial burden on us instead of drafting our own people? And they look to a few different places. Germany, I would say, is the last place they look. First, they go to Russia. Catherine the Great is in, in command of Russia. She's one of the great enlightened leaders in European history. If you recall, the Enlightenment is this age of reason. Uh, It's this age where you sort of uh, question everything. Your religion, your science, your God, your government, your economic system, you name it. And you apply what you learn. Catherine the Great, for all the terrible things she did to her own people, was believed to be an Enlightened monarch. Now, Catherine the Great of Russia had just put down a major rebellion in her own southern provinces. And when the British came to her with an offer to buy her armies, effectively, rent them out for use in America, she would have nothing to do with it. She said, we've already uh, used up too much of our own resources, and I don't necessarily agree with what you're going to do with them. Strike one. The next place Britain will go was to another power they had good relations with in this regard. It was the Netherlands. They went to the Netherlands, a republic of their own, And they asked to buy their army. And the Netherlands basically told them they would never use their forces to suppress another republic, or even a would be republic, like the Americans were talking about. So the British were kind of left out in the cold. They wanted to buy an army, they didn't want to use their own for financial reasons, but where would they go? Then they begrudgingly, by the fall of 1775, looked finally to the Holy Roman Empire, to what is today Germany. And I think they did it with some reservation. And the reason is uh, because Soldatenhandel, the soldier trade, was not necessarily looked upon as the most uh, the most prestigious thing you could do, the most generous thing you could do. It was looked at as uh, what it was. It was an old relic of a feudal system that had died off almost everywhere else in Europe, with the exception uh, of these small German states. Frederick the Great of Prussia, a German through and through, Uh, was uh, disgusted by the soldier trade. He said, you send your men to die in America like uh, cattle. Uh, That's the idea. He hates it. Uh, He's German like anyone else, but he was a very powerful German. Uh, Not all of them could say they were. So what Britain basically did was they went to the uh, smallest German states they could find that had a substantial army, and they said, what can you do for us? And they had offers flying at them from all across the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the Bavarian king offered his army to the, to the British. Uh, but the problem was they were horribly undersupplied. They were barely an army. They were wretched. And the British would have to spend more money not only to rent them, but to supply them. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, all across, you'd find this. Now, why did the Germans do it? I guess that's important, too. When you're a very small German state... You want to make money off of your natural resources. That's part of being a power. But the issue is, when you have very little land and very little water and almost no forest to speak of, you can't really find much to sell. You can't sell timber, you can't sell coal or minerals. Uh, Your exports are low. But you do have one thing, and it's your people. And you can export them. So when all else fails, you do that. If that sounds messed up, if that sounds backwards... Even by 18th-century standards, it was. But the fact of the matter is, much like the drug industry in America, none of these sort of unscrupulous uh, dealings would ever work uh, if there wasn't a consumer somewhere. And as much as the British were would be criticized for doing it, they were the consumer. They bought the armies. Britain will ultimately, by 1776, come to terms with six different German states. And this is where we can get into some of the naming. The uh, largest of the German states they dealt with that sent the most uh, men was a place called Hesse Castle. Hesse Castle. The people who come from there were called Hessians. In the end, about 18,000 Hessians would go to the New World to fight. So from the American vantage point, they called all German soldiers Hessians, even though really only about 55 to 60 percent of them were. It's a generic term we use to describe all of the German auxiliaries of the Holy Roman Empire used by Britain in the American Revolution. About 18,000 were Hessians. There were 30,000 in total by the end of the war. The other states they bought from were Hesse-Hanau, uh which was basically the son of the King of Hesse Castle, kind of branched off and controlled his the territory. He sent the second largest amount of soldiers. They brokered a deal with the King of Brunswick. Uh, He would send soldiers. That's three. And they uh, dealt with smaller and smaller kings along the way. Uh, They dealt with a group, uh, they dealt with a state called Anhalt-Zerbst. They dealt with a state called Valdeck. And finally, with the sixth state, uh, Anspach-Beirut. Now, Valdeck, I think, really sort of shows how crazy all this was, because Valdeck sent literally less than 600 men to the New World. Think of that. Uh, the Hessians sent 18,000. Uh, Valdeck is so anxious to be relevant, is so anxious to make any kind of money from the British. Again, they have no real meaningful exports other than their own people, that they can scrounge together 600 people. And they do it through a draft as well, which is even wilder, because they're basically f- creating an army just for the sake of selling them. This is what takes the Hessians, the German auxiliaries, to the New World. But again, in 30,000 total, by the end of the war, only about 18,000 were actually Hessians. The rest of were Brunswickers, Waldeckers, and so on. So there already you have a very compelling story going here. And the British weren't happy about this. The liberals in the British Parliament hated this because these small German kings have a very uh, uh, notable reputation for being scoundrels, as they said. Here's an example. Uh, One of the clauses that the British worked out, and these were done over six separate contracts with the six separate German states, was that for every man killed or wounded in action, the German king would be compensated with additional monies. Whenever they would make the reports back to Germany, how many of their men were lost in battle, how many survived, the German kings very famously were upset that uh, more of their men didn't die in the New World. Why? Because they want more money for it. So they're literally worth more dead than alive. I mean, that's a pretty bad starting point, I think, generally speaking, for your, uh, your political role in the world. But that's what we saw here and from 1776 all the way till the end of the war really till 1780 and 1781 german soldiers were being taken out of the old world and brought to the new and this is really setting the stage for a a very detailed i think study of what they did there which you can find in my book hessians mercenaries rebels and the war for british north america right away in america by the way whenever news of this happened thomas jefferson a master politician, and political propagandists jumped all over it. He said, "The uh, the British are hiring Hessian mercenaries. That's a word he used, mercenaries, to come and fight us. How terrible are they? And man, they really rallied that over and over and over again. And hey, because we still think that way, it must have worked, right? But here's the thing. Mercenary is a very messy term. But as all things, truth is in the eye of the beholder. The soldiers that were sent here from Germany were not mercenaries. They were not paid for their service. Their king was paid. They were ordered to go. They were basically paid the same thing that a British soldier was and uh, given food by the British army, but they weren't profiting themselves by this. And this was also a big problem back in England, because some of the German kings actually said to the the British, uh, why don't you pay me my soldiers' rations and I'll make sure that they get it. Obviously, that would never happen. The British refused to do it. Good on them. But this is the sort of problems you get into when you're dealing with these tiny, uh, sort of uh, spurious, uh, immoral German kings. That's why they didn't want to do it necessarily, but money talks. And it was much cheaper to do so. Now, in my book, I follow three different Germans throughout the length of the war and different theaters of the war. The first part of the book follows a Hessian Jaeger captain, which is light infantry, sort of the first one in, the last one out, very hard man, named Johann Ewald. Uh, he views the American Rebellion as what it is in his mind. He loves counterinsurgency warfare. He loves military tactics. He loves fighting, and not only fighting, but analyzing a guerrilla conflict. And he actually goes on to write a book, uh, on how you fight insurgencies. I mean, he's a very strict military man. But he views this American uh, upheaval as a rebellion. He calls it that. He doesn't call them patriots. He doesn't call them Americans. He calls them rebels. Because from his European mindset, his old world mindset, that's exactly what they are. I end my book with a discussion of a chaplain, a military chaplain uh, from Valdeck. And he is not a soldier at all. He's quite the opposite. He's very much a philosopher in his own right. And he looks at the American rebellion, and he can't make sense of it. He believes that the entire thing uh, is a deception. He says, how can these Americans say they're fighting for the cause of liberty and freedom and natural rights when they are taking every step and every measure possible to defend the institution of African slavery? He sees slaves all over the British Caribbean. He sees slaves all over the Floridas, all over the American colonies. He sees the way they're treated as cattle. And in his mind, this uh, story of freedom, this idea, this notion of liberty that the Americans keep beating over and over again, is all a fool. It's all its all a fool's errand. It's all made up to him. He can't understand. He says, what's this really about? And the ideas he has of what the American Revolution really is driven by, economic factors, political factors, are pretty impressive considering the view he had from a very limited scope. But how they see the revolution is very important. It's the crux of the book. Because I think it's uh, sort of revealing in that regard. So here's what we can say about that. For the Germans, what works for them, their order, is an old one. You have a king at the top. He's powerful. He's strong. He keeps everything in motion. He keeps everything secured and locked into place. Yes, they don't have as many rights as they'd probably like, but let's face it, it's 1776. Nobody does. That's why the American Revolution is so important. They view the government taking care of them. Uh, They are provided for and they're happy to serve their kings. The American Revolution. To them are people trying to upend that order, the order they love. To them, these are people trying to avoid doing things like paying taxes uh, and serving in the military and following the rules. These are people that put themselves ahead of the good of the empire. That's the idea. And that's really where these Germans come from throughout this book. And I think it's a very neat idea because you never hear their side of the story. I mean, when you look at where they stand in American history, They're probably due for a makeover. Uh, They're viewed as the goat. They're viewed as the bad guy. They're viewed as the lowest of the low. These aren't even the British coming to fight us. These are people the British hired. I mean, when you look at the legend of Sleepy Hollow, there's a reason uh, that the galloping Hessian was chosen, uh, less than 100 years after the war, to be the bad guy. Because people loathe the Hessians. Even German communities in the New World. Use the term Hess, der Hess, as like a slight. And that was part of it, too. There's a lot of fear in England that if you hire these German auxiliaries, they'll simply assimilate with these free German communities already in America, and you'll lose your initial investment. You won't get the service out of them. Again, by the end of the war, there's 30,000 Germans fighting in the New World. Remember, Britain's entire army was only about 45,000 men strong, probably less. So the Germans did most of the fighting, and they made a convenient other uh, for the American patriots to build their, their political case against. Remember, the American Revolution on all sides is a political war. I mean, there's no way around it. And from the British vantage point, yes, they saved some money hiring out these German auxiliaries, but they really gave a free pass to the Americans to run wild with their theories about why they were there. So to the Americans, every German is a mercenary. To the Germans, every American is a rebel. These are the forces that will largely fight the war for British North America. It's why I called my book, Hessians, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America, because it's a war of ideas. It's always been that way. I mean, we've been saying that from the beginning in this season. Ideas are powerful. Ideas are palpable. And what this is, is a, is a battle of ideologies in many, many, many ways. So even though it does break us from our stands our usual path of year by year by year, I think today's episode's an important one. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, Hessians is released May 15th, 2015. Next week we talk about the year 1780. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.